Part three, chapter eighteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Rostov had been told that he should find Kutuzov and the Emperor somewhere in the vicinity of the village of Pratzen, but they were not to be found there, nor was a single Nachalnik in sight, but everywhere throngs of fleeing troops of all nationalities. He spurred on his horse, which was already growing fagged so as to pass by these fugitives as quickly as possible, but the farther he went, the more demoralized he found the forces. Along the high roads where he was riding, carriages and equipages of all sorts were crowded together. Russian and Austrian soldiers of all the different branches of the service. Wounded and not wounded. All this mass hummed and confusedly swarmed under the dispiriting sounds of the shells fired from French batteries, posted on the heights overlooking Pratzen. "'Where is the Emperor? Where is Kutuzov?' asked Rostov of all whom he could bring to a stop, but not one could vouchsafe him any answer. At last seizing a soldier by the collar, he obliged him to reply. "'Eh, brother, they've all been yonder this long time, all cut sticks,' said the soldier laughing for some reason, and breaking away. Releasing the soldier, who was evidently drunk, Rostov managed to stop the denschik, or the groom, of some person of consequence, and began to ply him with questions. The dense chick told Rostov that the emperor had been driven by an hour before at full speed, in a carriage along this same road, and that the emperor had been wounded. It cannot be, said Rostov, it must have been someone else. I myself saw him, said the dense chick, with a self-satisfied laugh. I ought to know the sovereign by sight. I should like to know how many times I have seen him in Petersburg. He leaned back in the carriage and was pale, very pale. Heavens! What a rate those four black horses thundered by us here! I should think I might know the Tsar's horses, and Ilya Ivanuitch. I guess Ilya, the coachman, wouldn't be very likely to drive by with anyone less than the Tsar. Rostov gave his horse the spur and started to ride farther. A wounded officer passing by turned to him. Who was it you wanted? asked the officer. The commander-in-chief. He was killed by a cannonball. Hit him in the chest right at the head of our regiment. "'Not killed, only wounded,' said another officer. "'Who? Kutuzov?' asked Rostov. "'No, not Kutuzov. But what do you call him? Ah, well, it's all the same. Not many are left alive. If you go down yonder, yonder to that village, you'll find all the commanders gathered,' said the officer, pointing to the village of Gostiradek, and he passed on. Rostov walked his horse, not knowing now where to go or whom to seek. The sovereign wounded, the battle lost. It was impossible to believe that, even now. Rostov rode away in the direction indicated by the officer. In the distance could be seen towers and a church. What was the need of him to hurry? What had he now to say to the sovereign or to Kutuzov, even if they were alive and not wounded? That road, take that road, your nobility, else they'll shoot you down yonder, cried a soldier to him. They'll shoot you. Oh, what are you talking about? cried another. That's the nearest way to where he's going. Rostov considered a moment, and then rode in exactly the direction where they said that he would be killed. Now it's all the same to me. If the sovereign is wounded, why should I try to save my life? he asked himself. He rode out on the open space where there had been the heaviest slaughter of men escaping from Pratzen. The French had not yet occupied this place, and the Russians, that is, those who were alive or only slightly wounded, 
had long before abandoned it. On the ground, like shocks of corn on a fertile field, lay ten men, fifteen men, killed or wounded, on every root of the place. The wounded had crawled together, two or three at a time, and their cries and groans could be heard most gruesomely, though it seemed to Rostov that they were often simulated. He put his horse at a trot, so as not to see all these suffering men, and a great horror overcame him. He was not afraid for his own life, but lest he should lose the manliness which he felt was essential to him. He knew that he could not endure the spectacle of those unfortunate wretches. The French had ceased to fire on this field strewn with dead and wounded, because there was no longer any sign of life on it. But when they caught sight of the adjutant riding across, they turned one of their cannon on it, and sent a few balls after him. The sensation caused by these terrific whistling sounds, and the spectacle of the dead around him, aroused in Rostov's mind an impression of horror and self-commiseration. He recalled his mother's last letter. How would she feel, he asked himself, if she should see me now, here in this field, with these cannon pointed at me? At the village of Gostiradek, the Russian troops were retiring from the field of battle in good order, though the regiments were mixed together. This was out of range of the French cannonballs, and the sounds of the firing seemed more distant. Here all clearly saw and openly confessed that the battle was lost. No one to whom Rostov applied for information could tell him where the emperor was, or where Kutuzov was. Some declared that the report about the sovereign being wounded was correct. Others denied it, and explained this false though widespread rumor by the fact that the Oberhofmarschall, Count Tolstoy, who had gone out in company of others of the suite to see the battle, had dashed away pale and frightened from the field of battle in the emperor's carriage. One officer told Rostov that in the rear of the village over toward the left he had seen some officials of high rank, and Rostov started in that direction, not indeed with the expectation of finding anyone, but merely for the sake of clearing his conscience. After riding three versts and passing beyond the last of the Russian troops, Rostov reached an orchard protected by a ditch, and saw two riders standing near the ditch. One with a white plume in his hat had a familiar look. The other rider, whom he did not know, was mounted on a handsome chestnut charger. This charger somehow seemed familiar to Rostov, and rode up to the ditch, put spurs to his horse, and giving him his head, easily leaped the ditch into the orchard. The earth merely crumbled away a little from the embankment under the horse's hind hoofs. Turning his horse short, he leaped back over the ditch again, and addressed himself respectfully to the rider with the white plume, apparently urging him to do the same thing. The rider whose figure Rostov seemed to recognize, and had therefore involuntarily attracted his attention, shook his head and made a gesture of refusal with his hand, and Rostov immediately by this gesture knew that it was his idolized, lamented sovereign. But it cannot be that he is left alone in this bare field, thought Rostov. Just then Alexander turned his head, so that he had a good view of those beloved features so sharply graven in his memory. The sovereign was pale, his cheeks sunken, and his eyes cavernous, but there was all the more charm, all the more sweetness in his features. Rostov was delighted to be convinced that the rumor of the sovereign's wound was false. He was happy to have seen him. He knew that he might, nay, that he ought, go straight up to him and deliver the message that had been entrusted to him by Dolgorukov, but just as a young man in love trembles and loses his presence of mind, not daring to say what he has been dreaming about night after night, and timidly looks around, in search of help or the possibility of postponing it, 
when the wished-for moment has at last arrived, and he stands alone with her. So also with Rostov, now that he had attained what he had yearned for more than all else in the world, he did not know how to approach his sovereign, and devised a thousand excuses for finding it untimely, improper, and impossible. What? I might seem to be taking advantage of his being alone and dejected. An unknown face at this moment of sorrow might seem unpleasant and troublesome. Besides, what could I say to him now, when one glance from him makes my heart swell within me and seem to leap into my mouth? Not one of those innumerable speeches which he had so carefully prepared in case he should meet the emperor now recurred to his mind. Those speeches were for the most part indicated under different conditions. They were to be spoken at the moment of victory and triumph. Above all, on his deathbed, when he sank under the wounds that he had received, his sovereign would come to see him and thank him for his heroic conduct. Thus he would show him his love sealed by his death. Besides, what now could I ask the emperor in regard to his commands to the left wing, when now already it is four o'clock in the afternoon, and the battle is lost? No, really I ought not to trouble him. I ought not to break in upon his reflections. It would be better to die a thousand times than to receive an angry look or an angry word from him. Such was Rostov's decision, and melancholy, and with despair in his heart he rode away, constantly glancing back at the emperor, still remaining in the same undecided attitude. While Rostov was making these reflections and sadly rode away from his sovereign, Captain von Toll galloped up to the same place, and seeing the emperor went straight up to him, offered him his services, and helped him to cross the ditch on foot. The emperor, wishing to rest and feeling ill, sat down under an apple tree, and Toll stood near him. Rostov looked from afar, and saw with jealousy and regret how von Toll talked long and eagerly to the sovereign, and how the sovereign, apparently weeping, covered his eyes with one hand, and with the other pressed von Toll's. And I might have done that in his place, thought Rostov, and with difficulty restraining the tears of sympathy for his sovereign, he rode away in utter despair, not knowing now where he should go or for what reason. His despair was all the more bitter, because he felt that his own weakness was the cause of his misfortune. He might, not only might, but he ought to have ridden up to the emperor. And this was his only chance of exhibiting to the sovereign his devotion, and he did not take advantage of it. Why did I do so? he asked himself, and he turned his horse about, and galloped back to the same place where the emperor had been sitting, but there was no one any longer on the other side of the ditch. A train of baggage-wagons and carriages was winding along. From one of the wagoneers Rostov learned that Kutuzov's staff were not very far away, at the village where the wagons were bound. Rostov followed them. The foremost in the train, Kutuzov's groom, leading a horse with his trappings, the wagons followed behind the groom, and behind the wagon walked an old man, a household serf with bandy legs, wearing a cap and a half-shuba. "'Tit! Ah, tit!' cried the groom. "'What is it?' asked the old man heedlessly. "'Tit! Tit! Grind the wheat!' "'Eh! Durak! <laughs> said the old man, angrily spitting. Some time passed in silence as they moved onward, and then the same joking rhyme was repeated. By five o'clock in the evening the battle was lost at every point. More than a hundred cannon had already fallen into the hands of the French. Prashevsky and his battalion had laid down their arms. The other columns, having lost more than half their efficient, 
were retreating in disorderly, demoralized throngs. The relics of Langeron and Dukhtorov's forces, all in confusion, were crowded together around the ponds, on the dikes and banks of the village of August. By six o'clock the only cannonading that was any longer heard was directed at the dike of August by some of the French, who had established a large battery on the slopes of the Pratzer, and were trying to cut down our men as they retreated. At the rear, Dokhtorov and some others, having collected their battalions, made a stand against the French, who were pursuing our troops. It had begun to be entirely dark. On the narrow dike of August, where so many years the little old miller had peacefully sat with his hook and line, while his grandson, with shirt-sleeves rolled up, played in the water-can with a palpitating silver fish. On that dike, over which the Moravians, in shaggy caps and blue blouses, had driven their two horse teams loaded down with spring wheat, and returned dusted with flour and with whitened teams. Along this same dike, this narrow dike, among vans and field-pieces, under the feet of horses and between the wheels, crowded a throng of men, their faces distorted with fear of death, pushing each other, expiring, trampling on the dying and dead, and crushing each other, only to be killed themselves a few steps farther on. Every ten seconds a cannonball, compressing the air, flew by, or a shell came bursting amid this dense throng, dealing death and spattering with blood those who stood nearby. Dolokhov, wounded in the arm, on foot with ten men of his company, he was now an officer again, and his regimental commander, on horseback, constituted the sole survivors of the whole regiment. Carried along in the throng, they were crowded together at the very entrance of the dike, and pressed on all sides, were obliged to halt, because a horse attached to a field-piece had fallen, and the throng were trying to drag it along. One cannonball struck someone behind them, another struck just in front, and spattered Dolokhov with blood. The crowd moved on in desperation, squeezing together, and then halted again. If only we could make those hundred paces, and safety is sure, if we stay here two minutes longer our destruction is certain, said each one to himself. Dolokhov, standing in the midst of the throng, forced his way through to the edge of the dike, knocking down two soldiers, and sprang out on the glare ice that covered the pond. Turn out this way, he cried, sliding along on the ice, which bent under his weight. Turn out, he cried to the gunner. It will hold, it will hold and it was evident that it would immediately give way, if not under his weight alone, certainly under that of the field-piece or the throng of men. They looked at him, and crowded along the shore, not venturing to step upon the ice. The commander of the regiment, sitting on horseback at the entrance, was just raising his hand and opening his mouth to speak to Dolokhov, when suddenly a cannonball flew so close over the men that they all ducked their heads. There was a dull thud as though something soft were struck, and the general fell in a pool of blood. No one looked at the general, or thought of picking him up. Come on the ice! Cross the ice! Come on! Move on! Don't you hear? Come! was heard suddenly from innumerable voices after the cannonball had struck the general, though the men knew not what or why they were crying. One of the last field pieces that was just entering the dike ventured on the ice. A throng of soldiers hastened down from the ground upon the frozen pond. One of the rearmost soldiers broke through, one leg slumping down into the water. He tried to save himself and sank up to his belt. The men who stood nearest held back. The driver of the field-piece drew in his horses, but still behind them were heard the shouts, "'Take to the ice! 
What are you stopping for? Take to the ice. Take to the ice. And cries of horror were heard among the throng. The soldiers surrounding the gun gesticulated over their horses and beat them to make them turn and go on. The horses struck out from the shore. The ice, which might have held the foot soldiers, gave way in one immense sheet, and forty men who were on it threw themselves some forward and some back, trampling on each other. All the time the cannonballs kept regularly whistling by and falling on the ice, into the water, and, more frequently than all, into the mass of men that covered the dike, the ponds, and the banks. End of chapter 18